Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be embarking on a sort of second part of our saga of photographic history. We just did several parts uh, talking about the camera obscura and then the invention of photography. And now we're moving on to the motion picture. And I I wanted to start with a question that might be a stupid question, but it's something that I often think about when I go to the movies. And it's that When you go to the movies, you sit down to see a motion picture. The basic media that you're viewing Mm -hmm. is a succession of still images that are perceived by the brain as continuous visual motion and audio that accompanies it. And so that in itself is pretty neutral, right? Like that, that it could show you any number of sights and sounds. But what we came to view for some reason, as the motion picture, the thing you go see in a theater, most of the time these days is something like a visual novel or a visual short story. It's like a story-shaped thing, and then you watch it for an hour and a half or two hours, and Mm -hmm. then it's over. And obviously, there are lots of exceptions to this. And if you want to expand to video, I mean, God, I mean, there's a whole pool of different kinds of content out there. But the things we think of as movies are these stories, and I wonder why that is. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said about just the the importance of storytelling in human culture, something we've talked about on Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's a major factor. Like, what do, we, what do we do with our art and our technology? Well, we do human things. We, we tell stories, for starters. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's interesting, when you go back to the earliest days of the motion picture, I I feel like you get a sense back then that it wasn't always necessarily going to be this way. No, because yeah, as, as some of the uh, the examples we're going to discuss in this episode, you see the the, the more the the scientific uh, uh, direction of yeah. motion picture, the way that motion picture can be used to uh, to unravel what is actually going on in the world to to slow it down and to to better understand it. Yeah, to e- either present kind of a non-story-based visual spectacle mm-hmm. uh, to just kind of show you a succession of things happening or to study, yeah, to study the world and get a closer look at it, maybe to see it in a kind of slow motion that you wouldn't have seen before. Hmm. So you're wondering if there's perhaps like an alternate reality where, say, documentary is the primary – like when you, someone says, hey, do you want to come over to our house and watch a movie? Mm. You just assume documentary. And then if it's a fiction film, you're like, oh, it's not a documentary. How surprising. Or things that might be called like art films now. I mean mm-hmm. there, there are a million different ways you could show somebody a succession of still images simulating motion and accompanying sound. And it would not – and like, you know, there, there's an infinite variety of things you could do there that wouldn't be a story that some somewhat simulates the structure of a novel. Yeah. Or, or I mean, you, there, of course, there are plenty of examples of things like, say, live sporting events. Yeah. are also uh, presented uh, via the medium of essentially the moving picture. Yeah. Well, maybe then this just has more to do with uh, with our categories, like the things that we end up calling movies. Right. Uh, because as you know, as we mentioned a minute ago, there, there's a, there's a whole internet full of video content that you wouldn't call movies, but it it's something, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, this this does get to the, the heart of what we're talking about here, and what we've been talking about with the evolution of photographic technology, uh, how it 
how, how we see the, the technology grow, advance, then spread out and, and, and become, uh, you know, not the, merely the technology of uh, elite individuals, but uh, the technology of the masses. And then how that in, inevitably changes everything as well. Exactly. Now, one of the things that we have been talking about in our history of photography here is how the invention of photography was sort of part of a quest for ever-increasing realism in imagery, mm-hmm. right? That, that was something that Louis Daguerre was concerned with. He wanted to create more and more realistic paintings first, working on his panoramas and the diorama, uh, like taking the art of painting to, to new heights of realism and simulating real scenes. And of course, the next step beyond that is directly just transferring the light reflected off of things onto a permanent record. But of course, as, as we were talking about Fixed images are also sort of a simulation because reality is never a fixed image. Right. We we see a fixed image and it kind of implies motion, right? Yeah. Uh, there's this this wonderful blurring that kind of takes place in our imagination. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, just think about the ways that people had to be put in the Iron Maiden in order to have their portrait taken in the earliest daguerreotypes because, <laughs> you know, you had a exposure of several minutes and you couldn't move your face. I mean, so how natural is that a representation of a person? Uh, so the real way to get at reality even more, to get even closer to the experience of just looking at the world would be to record continuous imagery. Yeah, this uh, there's a particular type of uh, a video portrait. I think probably a number of people have probably seen it utilized in uh, the film Baraka uh, that came out uh, many years ago. I haven't seen it. Oh, you should. It's a you know fabulous, beautiful uh, cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just you know, scenes of life and tradition and ritual uh, around the world. But they have these wonderful scenes where it's just uh, an individual uh, staring into the camera, and uh, and you're just kind of locking eyes with them, and it feels uh, it feels very intimate. It's a, you know, it's essentially a, a, a motion portrait. That is interesting. I wonder why that didn't catch on once we had photo and video technology as the new form of portrait. You had painted portraiture, then you had photo portraiture. Why not video portraiture? So up on the wall, there's grandpa there just on a continuous loop of about 10 minutes of looking into the camera. Well, that's what they have in the Harry Potter world. Uh, oh, it's that. true. In the You're Harry right. Potter world, there, <laughs> there do not seem to really be any stationary photographs. All photographs are these motion portraits. So they're uh, ahead. Yeah, they, they are ahead. And no, so, we don't. Don't lack the technology. Is just that doesn't seem to be what people want when they're in their portraiture. <laughs> All right. So as, as we've been discussing, some of the predecessors to the motion picture are are very much the the photographic technologies we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. But uh, but but some things are not co- really directly related to that technology. And then we also really need to discuss some key phenomena that play into the experience of motion picture viewing. Right. These would be neurological and, and brain brain phenomena, psychological right. phenomena also. And one of these phenomena has historically been referred to, uh, though it's a problematic concept we can discuss a little bit, as, as persistence of vision. And other relevant phenomena that I think we'll have to mention are known as beta motion and the phi phenomenon, which we will uh, collectively call apparent movement or apparent motion. Right. So as we proceed, we'll, we'll kind of play catch up on all of that. Yeah. But uh, let's let's start with this idea of persistence of vision. Okay. So how do we think about motion pictures? 
Uh, when, when, when it's really good, we often don't think about it at all, do we? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what they say is the the best director of a film is the one who creates a film where you don't notice the direction. Like you're not picking out technical elements. I mean, unless you're really looking for them. But it's the person who creates the film that is pure experience, right? Yeah, you just get lost in the action, the emotion, the wonder. Uh, but even if we're, say, a little bit bored or checked out during a, a movie or a TV show, we may think of these things as, as well, we might just think of it as a massive production or a work of art. We might kind of take it apart in these different directions, right? Like, oh, I wonder how they shot this. Oh, this is this is a pretty, pretty long take. I'm bored, mm-hmm. but I'm admiring the, the all the work that went into making it. Uh, but we're probably not thinking of the film that we're viewing as visual stimuli that exploits uh, a loophole in the way that we process images. Right, but that's exactly what it is. It's taking advantages of sort of particular facts about the way our eyes and our brains work to make us have the illusion that we're looking at continuous images when actually we're when we're looking at a, a succession of still images that do not move at all. That's right. So persistence of vision is uh, is the retention of a visual image for a short period of time after the removal of the stimulus that produced it. Uh, the human brain can only process 10 to 12 images per second, retaining an image for a uh, for up to a 15th of a second. If a new image comes along within a 15th of a second, it creates an illusion of continuity. Yeah. Now, in the 19th century, persistence of vision was uh, originally sort of believed to occur because images lingered on the retina for a short period of time after mm-hmm. you see them. But I think that's not exactly uh, believed to be the the true cause of the experience of persistence of vision now. It is true that fast successions of still images are processed in the brain as continuous motion uh, or, or, you know, as as a single experience and not as a a succession of images, but not because the retina functions like a camera taking snapshots that can be measured in frames per second where they stack up if they come fast enough. Uh, I think the idea there was that you'd sort of blend one frame into another Mm. uh, that persists as new frames are sensed. But our modern understanding of vision as, uh, as perception is less like a camera taking snapshots and more kind of like an integrated sensation that involves the brain as much as the eyes. So even though the original understanding of persistence of vision might not be exactly technically correct, I think it's still useful as a metaphor for one way that uh, the, the still image seems to flow smoothly from one moment to the next if the still images are projected fast enough and it it's ultimately simulates continuous motion. Yeah, and so motion pictures were traditionally 16 frames per second for silent films and then 24 frames per second for sound films. And that seems to be kind of a, a low threshold right, yeah. of what we what is good enough for us to perceive as continuous motion. Yeah, anything anything less than that and you're going to get into sort of a, a herky-jerky stop-motion kind of feel. Right. Twas then that the herky-jerky man came <laughs> singing songs of love. Yeah, the the Phi effect was uh, originally defined in 1912 by psychologist Mac, Max uh, Wertheimer. And uh, it's a, he, def- he looked at it as a type of optical illusion of perceiving a series of still images when viewed in rapid succession as a continuous motion. Yeah, and this is one form of apparent movement. Unfortunately, it seems to me that uh, these two concepts are apparently uh, constantly confused in writings on photo history. I came across this because I was getting confused reading about mm. them when preparing for the episode. Uh, so in, in writings on vision, perception, and film scholarship, the definitions of uh, beta movement and phi effects seem kind of blurred together, as documented in a 2000 paper published in the journal Vision Research. Uh, So it took me forever to figure out what was going on here, and I was glad to find out it wasn't just 
me. Now, here's the the short, simple version. Both of these two phenomena, the phi effect and beta movement, they enable us to see various kinds of illusory motion in successive still images, but they refer to different speeds of projection and types of visual sensation. And to the best of my understanding, it appears to me that what's taking place in our perception of films is more related to what's known as beta movement. But either way, it's the brain's tendency to interpret certain types of of changes in successive static images displayed at the right speed as smooth, continuous motion. So, for example, if you see successive still images in which three dots are changing position on a black background in between the images, if you project them fast enough, we don't see images one at a time, but we see a snake moving around. Right. Basically, you know, what happens when you make a little flip book out of the corners of a of a document. Yeah. Uh, so on its own, apparent movement is an extremely interesting phenomenon given what it illustrates about the brain. It, it might be more mysterious and more interesting than we give it credit for, especially now that we're used to the idea of movies. But we've discussed it a bit on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before in the context of forming a perception of the present moment in our mm -hmm. sense of now. Like uh, apparent movement cited under the name of the phi effect can be demonstrated, for example, by rapidly flashing dots on different parts of a screen. Uh, and if the flashes are timed and positioned correctly, we don't just perceive a dot flashing here and then a dot flashing there, but we perceive a single dot that moves between the locations of the flashes. And this is one of the many, many ways for us to realize that our vision is not a straightforward objective record of reality, but it's a world of sensations stitched together in the brain based on objective light data, but definitely not a one-to-one -one representation of it. And just as a side note, because it's too strange and interesting not to mention, one really spooky effect here is the so-called colorify effect. So what happens if you take this principle of two flashing dots perceived as a single dot in motion, and then you change the colors of the dots between flashes? If your brain perceived continuous motion when there was none, how does it handle the color change between the endpoints of this path you imagine you see the dot taking, right? Flashes here, then flashes there, but changes color in between. What, what, what does the brain do there? Well, studies show that people tend to perceive a change in the color of the dot about halfway along the path that it takes. So you flash a red dot, then you flash a green dot, and people see a dot zip from one place to the other and change color from red to green about halfway there. But the really interesting question is how can you have seen the dot change color halfway there if it wasn't actually traveling and you didn't know what color the second dot would be until you saw it? Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's, that really forces you to rethink how we're perceiving now, how we're perceiving time. Exactly. It's so strange because it's like for a split second, your brain was able to predict the future. But of course, we know that's not what happened. In fact, what this seems to indicate instead is that not only is our vision a stitched together impression in our minds that's not a one-for-one -one representation of reality, our perception of time from moment to moment is a stitched together simulation as well, such that like our very perception can essentially be post-addicted. Uh, what you think you see in one split second can be changed by what you see a split second later. It's not until after you see the green dot that your brain forms your perception of the dot you saw halfway along its imaginary journey. So this means you're not just seeing with your eyes, you're seeing with your memory. 
and with other cognitive functions of your brain. So it's, it's vision is not reality, of course. It's an illusion mostly informed by reality. But it's sort of formed in, a, in, in an antechamber uh, of consciousness that's not quite there in your sensation where things are quickly edited together for you to perceive. And of course, all this is crucial in the way that movies work. Movies are not merely audiovisual objects. They require quirks of the human brain to make sense and to feel like representations of reality. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to continue to discuss how the motion picture works in our brain and then also some of the, the earlier models of this technology. All right, so I've got a kind of weird proposition about film technology. Okay. And it is that film technology, we should think of the earliest versions of it that originally evolved as a specifically human biotechnology, sort of like a medicine made specifically for the human body rather than as a pure physical technology because it has to do specifically with the human brain and the human eye. That's right. Uh, this is something that I think is really mind-blowing to, to think about. Because given the numbers we mentioned previously, uh, you know, the human brain can only process 10 to 12 images per second. Uh, and, and, you know, and then the way that the, the image uh, will persist for the 15th of a second. You might be thinking, well, what about animals? What about the various uh, pets that we sometimes have hanging out in our living rooms while the TV is on? Mm -hmm. You might wonder, well, can some animals not see television or films. Or at least not see it the same way we do. Right. And then how do they see it? What would that be like just to, uh, to have different eyes, different visual processing? Well, I was wondering about this, and I found a, an excellent little article in Science Nordic. And uh, in this uh, particular uh, article, Do Dogs See What's Happening on TV? They talked to Otto Ropstad, an associate or at least then associate professor at the Norwegian School of Veterinary Science. And uh, he, he pointed out that uh, it would, this would probably be like a strobe light torture show for, uh, for, any, uh, for, for various animals to w try and watch or be forced to watch uh, television um, or a movie, at least on an older television set. So they're, they're being visited by the herky-jerky man. Basically. So the article points out that while humans require, uh, said, uh, in this article it says 16 to 20 images a second to perceive the illusion of films, dogs require 70 images per second. So it's uh, really only been in the past decade or so that TV has become watchable to the canine audience. So at least for the, the you know the vast majority of canines out there. Yeah, my dog uh, has never shown any interest in TV at all, even you know our, our more recent TV. Uh, and I, but I think that may just be because he's a snob. Because I was looking this up, and uh, there is research indicating that dogs can recognize images, such as the images of other dogs and uh -huh. humans on modern digital TV screens. It just seems like some dogs don't. Don't really care. Hmm. I also wonder about just the, like the senses and the, that are important to a given oh, organism, yeah. because obviously if the dog can't smell. Yeah, the, the dog's sense of smell is is phenomenal. Like it, they live in a, a different sensory realm uh, that it's really difficult for us to try to even imagine. Uh, where it's it's really like like odor first, and if you remove odor from the equation, they're just not going to be taken in by the illusion. But we're we, we put all of our uh, emphasis on visuals and then, you know, uh, and, and audio second. Uh, and we, we don't, for the most part, we don't really care what a film s would smell like. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, outside of, uh, you know, a few smell-o-vision uh, uh, gimmicks here and there. Uh, for the most part, we're, we're fine not smelling the film. Are we going to do 
an episode on Smell-O-Vision, one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. I think it would be cool to do an episode where we talk about all the sort of failed inventions and innovations of uh, of, of, of the movie theater industry, uh-huh. uh, you know, getting into the Tingler and whatnot. <laughs> the Tingler. Yes. <laughs> Fun film, The Tingler. Um, but, uh, okay, so uh, dogs, 70 images per second. Uh, the article points out that birds need 100 uh, frames per second to see. And while the article didn't mention cats, I have read elsewhere that they need 100 frames per second as well. Um, and uh, and I, I have noticed that, that our cat, uh, she will a lot of times just not look at the television, but occasionally we'll put on these these HD uh, bird-watching videos on YouTube, mm-hmm. and she definitely perks up and gets into those. Oh, really? Now, part of that is listening, of course. Um, cats right. have, have uh, you know, amazing hearing, so, so they are, uh, you know, they're, she's definitely listening to all these bird sounds, but then she's also tracking the movements as well. Um, but, uh, you know, conceivably, though, this would not have been the case if you were playing bird videos uh, in in prior decades. Well, I think one thing we should keep in mind is that our uh, while we can be fooled in this illusion of successive still images being interpreted as motion in our vision, um, that all our sense, our different senses are not all synchronized in how they perceive things. Right. Uh, and they don't, they don't get fooled in exactly the same way. For example, I was reading somewhere that in the early days of film technology, when you would have like a hand crank film playback, uh-huh. people could deal with slight variations in the speed at which the visual frames were coming, but they could not deal with variations in which the accompanying sound was coming. Yeah, I, uh, I think back on, on the... Um uh, like the, the the varying levels of vi- of uh, video quality, I've been willing to deal with, mm-hmm. such as watching like half scrambled episodes of Tales from the Crypt, you know, in in my uh, my, my childhood. Yeah. But uh, but when it comes to audio, if there is audio present, like you need it to have a, a certain degree of fidelity. Now, uh, all of this that we, we've discussed, then, uh, as, you, as you can probably guess, there are ways to get to these effects to to exploit the, the these phenomena. Uh, in the, the the human visual processing system without using motion picture technology. Right, Fo- photographic motion picture technology right. because I guess you could have different definitions of what motion pictures are, but like you could, there were things that were sort of like a movie before there was ever a photography-based movie. Right. So uh, the first thing we want to talk about here is just sequential images and sequential art. And we could easily do an entire episode on sequential art. I, I, for instance, I highly recommend uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. If you're at all interested in comics and you haven't picked this up, uh, you definitely should. It's an insightful, uh, comics-based breakdown of all of this. So it, it itself is in comic book form, and it discusses like how comics work, how they're composed, and its origins in sequential art. Can I admit a weird personal thing about my experience with comics, and I don't know why I do this? Mm-hmm. Often when I read a graphic novel or or read a comic book, I find that I have to go back several pages and look at the pictures because I get into a rhythm of just reading the text in each frame and only barely noticing what the imagery is. And I find I have missed important plot elements because they were subtle uh, visual things in the images. And it's like I don't pay enough attention to that. And if I don't make myself, I don't do it. Now, that's interesting. I I've never experienced quite the same thing, but I do find myself, especially if I'm, I'm reading a book that's particularly gorgeous, mm-hmm. I have to remind myself to go back and look at the images just to, to take them in fully. Yeah, because I'm 
I'm just kind of speeding, I'm speeding through them and I'm not really focusing on all the work that went into each frame. Yeah. Uh, which if you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, with, with some of the, the, again, the more gorgeous uh, graphic novels out there, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the book and to, and, and also not getting my money's worth out of it. Right. Yeah, you know? no, I, I feel that sometimes too. And I don't know why I have that tendency. I mean, it would seem almost obvious and automatic that you should pay attention to the images, but yeah. sometimes the brain just doesn't work that way. Maybe this book you mentioned would help. Yeah, I, I, like I say, I think it's a wonderful breakdown of comics, and it's uh, it, it makes you appreciate them all the more. But uh, it does get a little bit into the the history of sequential images, sequential art. Uh, we should probably just summarize a bit and point out that the modern comic book, like what you're probably thinking of as a comic book, and our idea of comics uh, uh, itself, largely this came out of the 19th and 20th centuries. So some of the earlier forms actually predate the motion picture, such as the, the French comics of the 1830s. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you're going further back than that, when you're, when you're asking yourself, well, what are the oldest examples of sequential art? I think about the fart scrolls. The fart scrolls? Oh, yes, the Japanese the, fart scrolls. Medieval Japanese fart scrolls. Yeah. I guess they're not necessarily always sequential, but... Uh, but no, um, that is one of the, um, one of the areas you, you can end up going is not, not so much the fart scrolls themselves, but, <laughs> but the use of scrolls in Eastern traditions. Yeah. Like um, illustrated scrolls. Yeah, scroll paintings in India, scroll paintings in uh, in East Asia and Chinese uh, traditions. There are, there are also some traditions in which the scroll is presented um, almost like, uh, you know, a scrolling picture mm -hmm. where it is uh, – it's a, there's, there's a performance art to it as well. It's not just, hey, look at these scrolls. It's like gather round. Uh, we will present to you the scroll. Hmm. Um and you know, and the and so these are you know epic uh, paintings where you, uh, you you just you know scan your eyes across you you take it all in. So this doesn't, in any kind of optical illusion sense, simulate motion, but it does allow you to cognitively put the motion together in your head. Right. Yeah. There's, but then again, that does get kind of difficult too, right? Because we are creatures of the motion picture era, mm -hmm. making sense of sequential art and, and potential examples of sequential art from the past. So there are a lot of these examples where it depends on who's, who's arguing which side. For instance, uh, uh, looking at some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the ancient uh, cave illustrations. Mm -hmm. Some uh, make the argument that, well, we're looking at some form of sequential art. Others say absolutely not. The Baya Tapestry is another uh, example uh, where some make the argument that, yeah, what you're looking at here is sequential art grisly medieval sequential art. Uh -huh. But again, in all of this, there is no actual illusion of movement. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just thinking that on one hand, it makes sense to to just naturally sort something like an illustrated scroll or a comic book into a different category than, uh, than a, like a modern motion picture with a high frame rate. Right. Because one, at least it seems to me, we just automatically perceive as continuous motion through this optical illusion, like the beta movement type things. Uh, and, and that's just automatic and immediate. And whereas this other type of thing, like a scroll or a comic book with successive images, requires cognitive effort and the imagination to piece together into a visual narrative that seems continuous. I, I do assume that that's probably a difference that's hardwired into the brain, but I wonder. I mean, I wonder 
what sort of role conditioning and and sort of a culture of imagination plays there that if you don't have things like movies mm-hmm. if something like a comic book or a scroll with successive images uh, could through a sort of culture of imagination practice feel more like a movie does to us with like this kind of automatic conjuring of continuous visual sensation does that make any sense yeah, again, this is one of those areas where it, it, it you can you can really work kind of think yourself into a uh, into a circle when you start try, trying to decipher how you are actually absorbing uh, any particular form of media. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, you're getting into the you know you're reading an action scene in a book and you're picturing it in your head, mm-hmm. um, and then you're uh, then you're watching an action scene, you're reading an action scene on a comic book page. There's something similar going on, but with more visual. Uh, data to inform what's happening in your mind. I read a book uh, a couple years ago called What We See When We Read. Mm -hmm. I think the author's name was Peter Mendelsund or something like that. Uh, But I I thought it was a really interesting book. Basically, it was just a sort of artistically put together extension of this question of what do you actually – picture in your head as you read a piece of fiction? How does the imagination work? Um, Because we we have this idea that like, okay, when I read a book, I see the character, but it keeps asking all these probing questions about what exactly is it that you think you see? How do you see it? And it really makes you start to question the, the experience of your own imagination. It's almost like the imagination can start to feel like a second order illusion within your mind. Yeah, and and I feel like in my own experience, it's it's changed a lot uh, over time. Like when I first started reading like full blown novels uh, when I was a kid, I I went to great lengths to sort of cast it in my head and decided like what actors were playing what characters, mm-hmm. and then I would like focus on a consistent casting throughout my uh, reading of the book. Uh-huh. But for the most part, I got away from that as I got older. Uh, now I'll only rarely do that or or if there's some sort of film adaptation of a book or something, perhaps that'll kind of infect my uh, my thinking uh, along yeah. it. Um, I also f- remember there was a time when if I watched anything animated and then went and read a book, I would end up seeing it animated mm-hmm. and and it would always kind of discourage me from reading. I'm like, I'm gonna I'll read this tomorrow when the cartoons are out of my head. Yeah. Uh, but I don't really experience that anymore. I wonder if uh, does does the animation or the live action take precedence when you've seen both? Like, do you so you've seen live action and animation of The Hobbit and mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings? Does one have precedence in your mind? It's it's weird because this is a great example because there was a time like the first time I read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I went to great pains to not think about the animation. Right. <laughs> and then in rereading The Hobbit uh, to my son, um, I kind of forced myself to, to, and I think by just distance, by having not seen them in a while, I was able to avoid like summoning just the images from the Peter Jackson films and hopefully kind of have something in between, something that would just kind of emerge more from from my mind as opposed from these visual adaptations. I guess there are some elements that are easier to dash than others because I feel like I could read Lord of the Rings without picturing most of the stuff from the movies except like Christopher Lee would be stuck there. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't have any Saruman but him. Here's another example. Um, the Name of the Rose okay. uh, by Umberto Eco. The first time I read it, uh, like uh, in high school, I think, I was a big fan of the film adaptation, which I'd seen previously. So, of course, I pictured uh, uh, Brother William as being Sean Connery. 
But that's not really how he's described in the exactly. book. Exactly. In the so, book, he's, they say he's extremely tall and thin with red hair, I believe. <laughs> yeah. So when I reread it, uh, and this was several years ago, but during that, I actually had to, I went to great pains to focus myself and not picture Sean Connery, but instead to picture something more along the lines of, say, Jeremy Brett or maybe mm-hmm. Jeremy Irons, you know, someone who has <laughs> actually played Sherlock Holmes or has, you know, something more in line with, with the, the, like the, the feel of a Holmes character. Okay, I feel like we've gotten really far afield. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's my fault. We should get back to simulations of the uh, of movement, simulations creating this illusion of continuous motion, uh, I guess after just mere sequential art, when there started to be devices that could rapidly show us images that would that would more automatically simulate motion. And one of the crazy things about these uh, these 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 technologies we're going to discuss here is that they they all emerge from the same time period. They're all products of the photographic era and uh, and, and products of the, the the birth of the motion picture. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a time when people were thinking about the science of imagery and mm-hmm. vision, not just in the invention of the photograph. Now, remember, it was in the 1830s that Louis Daguerre and Henry Fox Talbot were inventing their their photography methods like the daguerreotype and the uh, what would eventually become Talbot's calotype method. It was in 1839 that they both announced them. So in 1832, uh, that is when we see a little uh, invention uh, that was known as the finikistoscope. Yeah. Uh, and so you you may have seen one of these in a museum uh, or perhaps you own one yourself as a toy or a collectible, but it's a spinning cardboard disc uh, attached vertically to a handle and then positioned radially around the center, the disk's center, you have a sequence of images that when rotated and viewed through slits on an opposing disk, uh, this creates the illusion of movement, like a very simple animation. Generally, it's something like uh, an individual uh, jumping rope or uh, an animal running, that sort of thing, a person walking. Uh, another example of this pretty much the same device is the zoetrope from 1834, a cylindrical variation of the previous invention with viewing slits on the side. So it looks like a drum and you rotate it and you stare through and again, you watch a very simple animation unfold. And these two, uh, you'll find them in a lot of like hands-on science museums uh, around the world. Yeah, and to be clear, again, in the zoetrope, it's still images, but because you view them spinning rapidly and because you view them in these slices through the slits, it simulates the continuous motion. But it doesn't perfectly simulate it. It's a little bit jerky. And one thing that's cool about that is that it creates a kind of creepy effect. Uh, I was going to mention that there are several scenes with a zoetrope in the horror movie The Conjuring 2. Oh, where, this is the one with Patrick Wilson. It, well, he's in all The Conjurings, I think. He's in <laughs> at least the first two. Okay. The second one's the one where he sings an Elvis song. For some, Somebody oh, thought no. that was a good idea. <laughs> but uh, there's a scene where Patrick Wilson stares into one of these zoetropes He's looking through the slits as the thing is spinning, and he he watches this strange man in a bowler hat and an umbrella walking around until suddenly, like, there's a jump scare. A boogeyman with bad teeth does a jump scare on Patrick Wilson. But it's actually a very effective sort of set piece object for a horror film because there is a way in which it's obvious and not quite there simulation of smooth motion is unsettling. Mm. I, I can't think if I've seen it used in another horror movie. Maybe it has been. Uh, but certainly other films have used the idea, if not of a zoetrope, at least of a flickering presence or gate, like I think of the ghost in the ring. Yeah. Uh, basically, I think any presence that is almost but not quite smooth and continuous the way modern films are 
tends to be perceived at least these days as creepy or horrifying. And this could have to do with a version of the Uncanny Valley effect, which we've discussed on a couple of episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But I, it, it's clear that a lot of people perceive that type of motion or presence in a flickering way as, as creepy today. Well, I know with, I want, the, with Samara in The Ring, I, uh, if I remember correctly, they filmed the actor uh, walking backwards uh-huh. and then reversed the footage. Yeah. So uh, she's walking uh, towards the camera, but the motion, like we can tell there's something weird about the motion, the way that her limbs are moving. Yeah, but there is also like a uh, like a, like a flicker, like there's a glitch in a VHS tape yeah. or something. Uh, and so that that's a weird, so there's the weird gate and there's the flickering like you would see in the zoetrope. I don't know if it would have been perceived as creepy in the same way back when these things were popular children's toys. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Huh. Now, uh, another uh, case, and this is a really fun case to consider, is the flip book. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's easy, especially with hindsight, to assume that the, fl- the flip book was surely invented, you know, well before uh, these previous uh, advancements. But there's no evidence that it was. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I made them when I was a kid. You have to imagine that people came up with this idea hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I mean, you can, you, I, I would guess like, well, all right, well, you need, you need paper, so you need the, the printed word, and then you would just need somebody bored enough to start drawing uh, like a, a just a cartoon horse in the corner and then flip mm-hmm. through them to create the illusion of movement. Uh, you know, the kind of thing that we all did as children uh, in various notebooks and what have you. But uh, yeah, when, when you start looking at the, the history, it looks like, uh, again, this is one of those things that, yes, it clearly could have been invented at any point. Uh, uh, in, you know, as long as that we had paper and uh, you know, and it was you know readily available, you know, you had some sort of flippable book at your disposal. But it seems like 1868 is about as as, as far back as we can go with huh. the flip book. Uh, that is when uh, uh, British printer John Barnes Linnae patented uh, a flip book, and uh, and that's the oldest known documentation of the flip book. And and I think a few things are illuminated here. Uh, again, th- as we've discussed in uh, in previous episodes, the dangers of hindsight in considering the history of inventions. Right. Um, also, just the true impact of motion picture technology and the way it's changed the way we think about images. And then, of course, the fact that for most of of, uh, of, of history, uh, paper wasn't something so readily wasted or even uh, – in, in even bound flippable books, I imagine, were too revered for, uh, you know, for someone to make a bunch of scribbles in the corners. Right. Though I'm kind of surprised uh, a monk never made one in the Middle Ages, like doing an illuminated manuscript. Well, it's entirely possible that it that it did and it didn't survive. Like yeah. that's possible. There's just no evidence. Yeah. Um, I, I think there have been some cases for certainly sequential art uh-huh. in illuminated manuscripts, but not not a flip book, nothing that creates the actual illusion of movement. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hindsight bias. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, I think we need to take another break, but then we will be back to discuss a little more about the technology that directly preceded the motion picture. All right, we're back. So when you think about a motion picture camera, in order to do what it does, it has to take a lot of photos in very quick succession that can be played back in very quick succession, right, in order to get the level of frame rate that actually looks like motion to our eyes. Uh, so how, how did we get there? Like what was there between the daguerreotype or the calotype, you know, these single exposure camera shots and the actual movie camera? 
Yeah, I can't help but use the metaphor of um, of guns and uh, weapons of war when thinking about it, because certainly a daguerreotype would be kind of like an old-timey cannon, right? Uh-huh. It was a pain to load it, uh, to aim it, to fire it, and then you'd have to go through the whole rigmarole of loading it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you're, you were dealing with, with lengthy exposure times in some of the earliest cameras, right? Uh, but... Uh, but but as the but for a motion picture camera to to function as a motion picture camera, you essentially have to have a machine gun. Yeah, it's just just taking picture after picture after picture after picture. And so one thing that immediately occurs to me is that you've got to somehow deal with the change in the media on which it's recorded, because the earliest photos were taken on on media that had to be sort of specially prepared and loaded up one at a time. How 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 could you load a camera for rapid exposures of many images? Yeah, and when we're talking rapid exposure, we're talking exposure, exposure times of a fraction of a second, uh, a long way from those hour-long exposures that we were talking about in previous episodes for photography. And by 1870, the exposure time was down to one one-hundredth of a second and ultimately one one-thousandth of a thousandth of a second. Which is fast enough for, for motion pictures, of course. Right. But how do you get all the, like, you, obviously you're not going to be using, like, metal plates for that. Right, yeah, well... So here's the here's the thing. One of the earlier approaches to this uh, problem simply involved using multiple cameras. Ah. Like, it's, you know, think again about the Canon. Uh-huh. You, well, you can't possibly create a, a single old-timey Canon that's going to fire uh, six cannonballs in the space of a few seconds. It's impossible. Get you six cannons. You get six cannons. You line them up. You have them, you know, li- you know uh, uh, in the ship, right? Uh-huh. And then you just fire them all off in succession. That's exactly the approach that was taken uh, early on by photographers such as uh, Edward Mybridge. Oh, yeah. Famous for the, his running horse images from 1877. He used a battery of 12 cameras to pull this off. And I guess we'll explain more about that in a minute. Yes. Now, before we came in here, Robert, you were you were telling me some strange details about the life of Edward Mybridge that I have never heard before. Yeah, I was, I was reading a little bit about him in the History of Photography by Beaumont Newhall. And um, uh, Mybridge is a fascinating character. Um, uh, Do you know why he spells his name the way he does? Yes. Yeah, so he wanted he wanted his name to sound more archaic because he was born Edward James uh, Muggeridge and mm-hmm. uh, he wanted a fancier show name, essentially. So it's Edward in his name is spelled like Edweird. Yes. And then uh, and then Mybridge is spelled M U Y B R I D G E. Okay. So earlier in his life he was uh, he was born 1830. He would die in 1904, but uh, earlier in his life he was a bookseller. But then he sustained severe cranial injuries in a runaway stagecoach crash in 1860. Okay. Which uh, it was a, like a brutal accident, actually killed one of the passengers and injured just about everybody else too. Uh, but anyway, you know, severe cranial injuries required a good year of treatment uh, and he was forever changed by it. Possibly, uh, this is possibly the reason for some of his emotional and erratic behavior later in life. But during his recovery, he took up photography. Okay. Now, um, and then this in photography is where he would, he would really make his name. Yeah. Uh, but as a, there was just a note about a a murder trial that uh, that took place what? Uh, in the history of photography. So I had to look into it a little bit more, and uh, and this is the the story. Basically, in 1872, he married Flora Shalcross Stone, but then he caught wind of a, a former lover uh, that lived in the area, uh, a Major Harry uh, Larkins, and he got it in his head that that uh, that Larkins was the father of Stone's son, uh, Floredo. 
So Mybridge went uh, to Larkin's house, uh, confronted him at the front door, and shot him dead on his doorstep. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, or he shot him, and then he died later that day. At any rate, uh-huh. fatally shot him uh, on, on his doorstep. And uh, so Mybridge was accused of the murder, and uh, the defense uh, ended up leaning on his previous brain injury, saying, look, you know, he was in this horrible accident, and it, it, it changed the way his, his brain works. And, and they brought in expert uh, testimony. They brought in uh, people to speak to say, yeah, he was a totally different person before this took place. And uh, they were going for, uh, you know, an insanity plea, which I've read that, uh, that Mybridge apparently undercut this himself when, uh, uh, when he was questioned. Uh, but at any rate, the judge ended up throwing out the insanity plea uh, and then uh, acquitted Mybridge on the grounds of justifiable homicide. <laughs> I guess that was a different time. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, because there was no questioning based on what I was reading that he, he killed this guy. Yeah. He, he murdered this guy on, on his doorstep. But, um, but yeah, he was, uh, he was acquitted uh, and it was considered justifiable homicide. Um, it, it was an important case apparently because it serves as, as like a, an, hist- an historic uh, forensic neurology case in neurology, forensic neurology, uh, neurology defense. Uh, it would also, uh, by the way, go on to become uh, an opera. Uh, Philip Glass would compose an opera based on these events titled The Photographer. Hmm. Uh, but it's just a, yeah, really tragic uh, episode. Um, yeah. Uh, Flora uh, petitioned for divorce, uh, had to do it twice, and was finally granted it. She died in 1875, and then Mybridge had the son uh, placed in an orphanage, and Floredo ended up working his entire life as a ranch hand and a gardener, and he himself died in 1944 in a pedestrian traffic accident. But uh, but Mybridge had established himself by this point as a photo- as a photographic pioneer. Uh, former governor of California Leland Stanford had commissioned him to photograph his racehorses, uh, work uh, that was interrupted by the trial. But the the resulting images were widely pl- published for their detailed depictions of horse locomotion. And this was the idea of using multiple cameras right. set up in succession to to capture images very rapidly back to back. Yeah, run the horse past this battery of cameras, fire the cameras off, and then we can look and see are the horses. Uh, legs actually all coming off the ground as it runs across uh, the field. Apparently, this is a controversy in the 1870s. Like, people are are actually highly concerned to know whether the horse is ever completely airborne or always has at least one hoof on the ground. Right, yeah. And so these images were uh, sens- were a sensation. Uh, they were widely published uh, for their detailed uh, uh, depiction of horse locomotion. And, uh, and in 1880, uh, Mybridge uh, invented what he called a zoo gyroscope or a zoo praxiscope uh, to project his pictures on the screen. So, you know, in all of this, from capturing locomotion to projecting images, he was highly influential. Like he, he influenced uh, a number of individuals who would go on to continue to, to tinker with and, uh, and innovate uh, uh, motion picture technology. I'd heard about his his accomplishments in photography before, and I'd never heard about like the murder or any of this. Yeah, yeah, it's a like a it's a brutal and sad story uh, because it's it's one of those where you're you're dealing again with with a brain injury as well. So it's not just yeah. a situation. And I mean, we've talked a bit about this and stuff to blow your mind when you really start breaking down like neurological realities. Uh, a lot of our judgments about people's behavior are not so cut and dry. Yeah. But this one I feel feels especially problematic, um, first of all, because of the, 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 the brain injuries he sustained. And then secondly, because it's just like he clearly murdered somebody in cold blood and, um, and was acquitted. Yeah. So it's, uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tragic, uh, tragic episode. But like I say, he influenced a, a number of individuals, including uh, in the 1870s, French uh, physiologist Etne Jules Marais, who lived 1830 through 1904. Yes, the same, the same years uh, that, that Mybridge lived. And they both died in May of 1904, one week apart. Okay. So it's just pure dumb luck. But it's one of those things. You're not did, suggesting Mybridge did it. No, but it's one of those things when I was putting together my notes, I was like, oh, did I just write down the, the wrong dates for this individual's life? Because uh -huh. they are exactly uh, the dates of the previous individual. No, they just happened to have been born and to have died uh, in the exact same years. But anyway... Um, uh, Murray, he invented uh, what he would call the chronophotographic gun <laughs> to capture the movements of birds in flight. So uh, he, he, he set out, he, he's one of these individuals who, like, he was really going after the science first. Like, he, was, mm -hmm. he, he wanted to, to, to break down how a bird is flying, to capture the visual details that are, uh, that are happening too fast for the human eye to observe. And so he was de developing uh, the, the photographic technology to make it happen, inspired by Mybridge's work with horses. And this is a wonderful contraption to look up because it really did look like a gun. Uh, it imprinted 12 photos a second on a rotating glass plate. Uh, and it had, a, it had like a, a butt, you know, the, for mm -hmm. a shoulder. It had a trigger. Like it was, it was, it was built on the, like the stock of a rifle. Uh, so there are these wonderful old um, uh, illustrations of a, of a gentleman, uh, presumably Murray um, uh, himself, uh, you know, uh, going down on one knee and holding up the, uh, this fabulous uh, you know, photographic gun and aiming it at birds in flight. And, and with this device, again, he's doing what Mybridge did, but he's doing it with a single instrument. Yes, with one camera. Mm -hmm. So this is a step closer, actually, to the idea of a movie camera. Right. Again, only 12 images here. So all he could do and all he was setting out to do, of course, was to you know, capture the movements of a bird. And, uh, and, and the, the images that this, uh, this camera gun produced are, are pretty impressive. Like they are taking locomotion uh, that is happening uh, at a scale that the human eye can't really perceive and the human mind can't fully process. And it's breaking it down so that we can analyze it. And this, uh, this uh, continued to inspire, the, both of these uh, cases continue to inspire other uh, individuals to do the same thing with human locomotion, with the locomotion of various animals, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, really taking on the scientific task of using this new technology to better understand what is transpiring in reality. Well, as we were talking about at the very beginning, it makes me imagine an alternate history in which movies come about, but they're only considered like a tool of documenting reality in order to study it. And they <laughs> never get repurposed into like any form of storytelling. Yeah. Or you could imagine an alternate world where uh, where it's prohibited, where, where uh, cinematic technology, photographic technology – is only for uh, uh, for science and truth, never uh -huh. for, uh, for for narrative. Never for Transformers. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and cut this episode off here. Uh, mm -hmm. But we will be back uh, to finish with a, a part two on motion picture technology. That's right. We'll get into uh, a, a great uh, Edison rivalry that doesn't mm -hmm. even involve Nikola Tesla. Yeah, but but yeah, Edison will definitely play a role, as will uh, Kodak, uh, as was we set up in previous episodes, mm -hmm. and uh, and we'll discuss more about just the impact of like how how motion pictures were initially perceived and how people reacted to this this new medium, and and again how it's just changed the way we understand uh, reality and the passing of time and our our own sense of self. 
In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionshow.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Uh, If you want to discuss episodes of Invention, a really cool place to do it is to head on over to the old Facebook and look for the Facebook group, um, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's where folks talk about episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which Joe and I also host. Uh, But also episodes of Invention are discussed there as well. Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance with this episode and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.